you. This is Cruise Radio Rewind. Real reviews from real cruisers. Welcome in. My name is Doug Parker. You're listening to Cruise Radio Rewind. I have Frank and his wife Megan on the line today. They went um, on a 58-day cruise. Yes, so they went from Port Everglades down to South America and back to Port Everglades. And one of the interesting angles of this interview is... They were sailing during the time when things started getting crazy with the cruise industry. Of course, across the world, Diamond Princess was happening. Closer to home on the West Coast, Grand Princess was happening. So we're going to talk about how things progressed through their sailing and how Princess Cruises pivoted as they were learning about COVID-19, as was the rest of the world. Also excited to talk about this 58-night cruise because normally they're not, you know, they're young, you normally don't find some young people on a 58-night cruise. You have to be either retired or have the time off to do this. So we're going to jump right to them right now. Hello, Frank. Hello, Megan. Hi. How you doing? Good. I'm super excited to talk about this itinerary in this cruise because we've never had someone talk about a voyage, you know, spanning almost two months on the show before. Normally, it's just like a back-to-back six-night and then a seven-night cruise or something like that. So, super cool here. So, so much to unpack before we get to Island Princess itself. So, we'll take a step back. Give us some thoughts. Like, what made you want to say, you know what, let's go on a 60-night cruise? So we have actually been kind of tracking this cruise or this itinerary, I guess, uh, for quite some time. And we're trying to decide uh, which of the other cruise lines we actually wanted to go to because there's essentially a couple of cruise lines that have a circumnavigating of South America itinerary. And so we've been kind of tracking it for about a year or so. And then there was an opportunity at work that opened up that made it just too good to pass up. I think for us, our biggest determining factor was, one, the ports. Mm -hmm. We were really interested in heading out to Easter Island, which this cruise did. The other cruise we've been looking at also added in the Amazon. You cruised up and down the Amazon. But that was a 77-day adventure. Mm -hmm. And I think we determined... As crazy as this sounds, that 77 days was way too much and 58 <laughs> days was just right. <laughs> All right. Um, so the two, yeah, the two months seemed to be a good fit for us. It would work for the boys. It gave us enough time to plan out everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hit the best weather in South America um, for this time of year. Very cool. So, I mean, there's just so much planning involved with this. I mean, even from like, you can't just lock up your house and walk away for two months, right? No, there was no locking up and walking away. Um, we booked the cruise in, in I think, August, um, and the cruise left the beginning of January. So we had about about six months to plan, um, and I am a major planner, so we had a 107-page itinerary for all of our ports, wow. um, and we do all of that in a Google Doc so that Frank and I can both look at it, share our ideas, and we go through and we kind of assess what the exchange rate's going to be because that also determines what types of activities we're going to do, mm-hmm. what the transportation costs are going to be like, what the port information is. Some ports are much further away from all of the things to do than other ports where you can say just get off the port and walk to the downtown area. And then we break it down into things to do, including the cost to go there, the operating hours, what we're going to do if it's a rainy day. Um, We screenshot a Google map of all the activities we've narrowed it down to um, so that we kind of know it's going to take us, you know, 45 minutes to get to our 
the furthest away destination. And then, you know, we end up closer back to port and we narrow it down from there. So I do a first draft that probably includes maybe 10 to 15 things we want to do in that particular city. And then Frank goes through and he kind of marks off, you know, these look good to me or I'm not too concerned about one or the other. And we narrow it down from there to what we'd like to do. And we include as much information as we can about each port. And then once that's kind of all taken care of, then we go into all the packing, Mm -hmm. which for a family of four is a little monumental because you don't want to overpack and you also don't want to have not enough to make it work. Um, So I think packing cubes are the biggest recommendation I'd have for anyone. Um, Everybody gets a cube and you get to fill up your cube. And we took two suitcases and two duffel bags. So for 60 days, that's kind of what we traveled with. And we actually didn't even need one of those duffel bags because the weather was so gorgeous. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. You are, yeah. a, you are definitely a planner. Like as far as the resources you were using, were you just going like uh, to Cruise Critic and TripAdvisor and websites like that? I use Cruise Critic to kind of start off, but then I go into all of the blogs. Um, we like to do things that are a little more off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking for a more authentic experience when we go into the cities and the towns that we're visiting. So it's a lot of reading, a lot of research. Food is another one. So as much as we love the cruise food, typically when we cruise, we'll just eat on the ship because it's only seven days. But for 60 days in South America, we really wanted, you know, the paletas, the, you know, the popsicles. That was huge for me. Um, So researching all of the additional food. So going into food bloggers and kind of researching each individual city, going on Yelp and seeing what was highest rated by visitors and also what's most highly rated by the locals, um, because that's where we're most interested in going. And that's also where you get the best deals and you truly get to experience the actual life. So the bloggers, I think, do the best job of covering all the meat, but Cruise Critic and TripAdvisor give you that basic info of these are the highlights of what tourists want to see when you go somewhere. You make your way down, you're in Virginia, and you go to Port Everglades. Did you do any pre-cruise time before this big journey? We actually have two dogs, so I, I actually went to um, drop off our dogs at our, our relatives to watch them during these uh, two months. So I drove down in our minivan, and then I spent about probably four days uh, beforehand in South Florida, in Delray Beach, um, specifically because I have a my mom lives there, so that's where it's going to be our, you know, our, our, our camp. Uh, for a little while. We, we're we one of those that we will um, travel the day, at least the day before our sailing um, there. So it, it's very helpful that we have my mom there. Um, so we, we, we kind of post up Megan and the boys, just because there's no point in having them all through uh, sitting in car seats for that long, uh, flew down. So they flew down, I think, the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day before uh, the sailing. And we spent some time with my mom. And then we uh, headed down to Port Everglades. So it's the morning of the cruise. You wake up. It's time to embark for this 58-day sailing. Uh, how was your embarkation process? Embarkation went very smoothly. We expected it to take a little bit longer, but I think there were maybe 10 people in front of us in the line at most. They had enough agents. It was quite easy, actually. We've cruised before, and usually there's a much longer line you know, you're kind of standing around um, and then you're waiting to also get on the ship. We got there relatively early. 
we're one of those that ignores the instructions that the cruise line sends you. And we uh -huh. always get there about an hour or two, if not more, before when they say you can get on the ship. So we got there at 11 a.m. I don't think we were supposed to be there till 2 p.m. So maybe that made a difference. Um, <laughs> but they let us they let us ride on. You know, everyone's there for the ship. The boys get a little band. So I think that's the only thing that took a little bit longer was for them to provide us with all the information about keeping your children safe. And then they get a muster station ID bracelet that goes on their ankle or their wrist. Yeah. And it took us, I think we, we, we kind of tracked it and it took us about 30 minutes uh, from, from start to, you know, being on board. And we were actually kind of surprised by, you know, we started, we got there around 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, shortly after we uh, got there, it was announced like at 1230 that our room was available. Mm -hmm. So they had definitely streamlined their embarkation and their turnaround time very, very well. Nice. We did not actually leave port, though, until we left about an hour and a half. And the captain said it's because there was so much luggage. <laughs> <laughs> Rightfully so. This ship isn't fully outfitted with Ocean Medallion as of recording this. Were there any Ocean Medallion processes in your embarkation? I think you could have gone through and pre-downloaded the app, but there wasn't, uh, as in like other sailings we've seen where you can do your, like your fast pass almost, where mm -hmm. you do all of it on the app and you kind of just show one of the attendants there and they scan it and they confirm and you kind of move right through. Yeah. I don't remember that being something that mm -hmm. was offered at the time. Gotcha. Okay. So you make your way on board Island Princes. What were y'all's first impressions? Well, it was definitely a smaller ship, which we expected. Um, in order to reach a lot of these ports, it has to be a little more compact in size. It maintains that old world feel, which we appreciate. Um, other passengers may not. They like the the shiny new modern look. Um, we like the all the wood and the very old fashioned type look. But the food was great. Um, the staff was all very attentive. All the employees were very welcoming. I think for, you know, one of the things I had, I pointed out is it didn't feel rushed once we got in there. The atmosphere is a lot more cozier because it is it is a, a smaller ship. I think the ship only holds about 2,100 people. And so I found that actually very enjoyable. We didn't, you know, lines at the buffet when you first get in there can kind of be pretty crazy on embarkation day. That wasn't an issue. Things were very well laid out. One thing that really stood out for us, and we kind of made a big note, is normally on uh, other cruise lines that we've sailed, there's a lot of upsailing very early on, very kind of in your face upsailing. And this was not the case with Princess. Uh, it was very subdued. It said, hey, if you're interested in specialty restaurants, um, you can go over here to your left. If you're interested in drink packages, you can go to the right over here. But it wasn't kind of in your face throughout the first day. I'm just curious, what other cruise lines have y'all sailed on before? We've sailed on MSC, Oceana, and Royal Caribbean. Okay. Very good. So you make your way to your stateroom. What kind of stateroom did you book for this 58-night cruise? Well, we were actually technically a little late to the booking. Mm -hmm. um, so we did an ocean view, and we were on deck five, which is relatively low. With four people in the room, there's a lot fewer options because you need to have the Pullman beds, which mm -hmm. drop down from the ceiling. So there aren't as many rooms that have that available. Um, so for families looking to cruise, you kind of have to book a little bit earlier to make sure you get um, a room that has those drop down beds. We like the ocean view with young children just because they can stick their faces right in the well mm -hmm. of the window and they can watch the waves go by and you don't have to worry about them 
standing on the table and potentially leaning over the balcony, which is one of my biggest fears, I guess, for them. Um, so that worked out quite nicely for us. I also liked in the room layout that they had, that it had almost like two separate sections. They had the, the bathroom compartment in the front, uh, along with their the wardrobe and closet area. Mm-hmm. And that separated you from the, I would say, the living area where the, the desk um, and the chair, chair, a bedroom, the bed and the TV were at. And so that was actually really helpful when you have little kids so that when they're taking nap time, someone can, it, you know, when you open the door, it doesn't shine all this light in there. There's actually the closet blocks the, the, the most of the, the, the light from there. So that's very, very helpful for us um, as you know, traveling with children. I'm curious because the, the cruise was so long. Was there adequate space for four humans in there? Like, did you feel comfortable throughout the whole cruise? I think for us, we definitely felt comfortable at times. Space was a little tight when, you know, the boys were getting a little rambunctious. But we try to plan for that in advance. So we bring the shoe hanger to hang behind the door. Um, so that helps with storage. We also bring the hanging little, it's like a collapsible shelving unit that goes into the wardrobe closet that hangs down. So we had an additional six shelves of space to utilize um, for putting away all their clothes. And that made it easy also for everyone to be able to do their own thing. So we didn't have to get the boys dressed in the morning. We could say, go get your clothes. And they could pick out what they wanted to wear and reach it off their shelf and bring it out, which helped with the spacing issues. We also use all the little magnetic hooks that we attach to the walls to kind of get things up and off the floor to make life a little bit easier. And one of the things that we commonly do that um, we realize that other cruisers don't know is that you can ask your room steward to reconfigure your room to that best suits you. So normally there's like a little desk table, a freestanding table. We, we quickly got into our room. We asked our room steward to take that away. We asked them to remove one of the nightstands. One thing about princesses, they are very accommodating um, and uh, in actually allowing you to reconfigure the room how you want it. So instead of having the bed center, we asked it to be um, shifted to the right side. And so um, they reconfigured that for it. And also the way they dro- they pulled down the beds, we had that reconfigured. Um, uh, instead of having both of them down, we actually only ever had one down um, for it, just so that it opened it up uh, a little bit more so. So that's um, that was also helpful to make it um, not as cramped during the 58 days. Okay. And we reconfigured the bed so that there was less space for the boys to fall off the bed since mm-hmm. we still had one that's under two. Yeah. <laughs> um, we bring a blow up little bumper that goes on the bed as well. Okay. So you're able to have three sides basically that have a, um, a bumper or a yeah. wall to keep them safe and secure and not rolling off the bed in the middle of the night or sitting up and hitting the bed that's pulled down from the ceiling. Yeah, gotcha. Well, let's talk about dining on this cruise. And I mean, for a ship that's 17 years old, there's some decent dining options. So let's start in the main dining room. Uh, What time dining did you have and how was the experience? We did the anytime dining because when we go into ports and when the boys wake up from nap are variable, Um, it changes day to day. We didn't use the main dining room very often. Um, because it is much longer sit-down meal, and with children sometimes it's just not worth two hours sitting in a chair. But we really enjoyed it when we went. The servers were fantastic. The wait staff was so accommodating for, you know, they would make little animals. They brought out all the things for the boys to utilize. 
They had coloring sheets, which we haven't seen on any of the other ships we've been on. Um, you know, they don't always have crayons and things for, to keep them entertained. And the food was very good in the dining room, but you can find most of it upstairs in the buffet as well. So when we would go to the main dining room, we tended to do a comparison between what was being served upstairs and what was downstairs. And in the buffet, one thing that they did that we found is kind of different in other ships is they would have um, specialty action stations uh, at di- on different dining nights. So on one of the Asian theme nights, they had a ramen noodle station where they had uh, someone actually creating uh, your custom ramen noodle bowls. They did that uh, also on pasta nights where they would have um, custom pasta stations. And those we tend to, to, to like as well. I think the, the rest of the family found the food to be very much comparable uh, in, in the buffet. Now, the service there was definitely different. In the beginning, they they had some challenges getting the um, uh, high chair and the booster seats. But after about five days, once again, our kids were one of only seven kids in the entire sailing throughout the 58 days, and that was going up and down. So they realized that most efficient to just park a uh, booster seat and high chair up there. And after that, it was kind of like clockwork. When the staff saw us come in, they kind of knew where would you like to sit and reposition that for us. And also we're very, very helpful in helping us actually get the food as well, you know, because it's, you know, food for people, but there's only two people to bring it, right? Um, and so they helped a lot to get us settled uh, in the, into the, the, um, our tables. In the buffet area, I mean, with because you were on there for almost two months, was there a general rotation of food or was it pretty much the the standard most of the, the crews? I was surprised, to be honest with you, that they had such a good rotation of food uh, for 58 days. And one thing that I really like is that they bring in the local flavors and themes of where you're sailing to. So it was commonly that we would, you know, have... Peru dishes when we were by Peru, Colombian dishes when we were by Colombia, Argentinian dishes when we were in Buenos Aires, mm-hmm. um, and so and English dishes when we were in the Falkland Islands. So that actually helped keep up the variety in there. You you bring up a really great point that after after so many days of buffet, sometimes you know just going to the pizza because they have an outdoor pizza area uh, is just as satisfying when you want something really simple. But I will say their pizza that they made there was exceptional. They make it very fresh. It's a very classic Napoleon style pizza. Mm -hmm. And their grill up top, they have, I think it was on deck 15, right? They have Mm -hmm. a, a grill that does burgers, chicken sandwiches, hot dogs. I think it was one of the best hot dogs at sea I've, I've had before. So uh, there was enough variety throughout the ship. Plus, this is something we didn't realize. In their specialty dining on certain at-sea days, they opened them up to do themed lunches. So they have uh, the Bayou Cafe, which is a New Orleans Cajun-style specialty dining, that they, uh, on certain sea days, they offered a pub lunch there that was complimentary. At their Italian specialty dining, Sabatini's, they did a um, pizza, custom pizza lunch that was also complimentary. So that was kind of interesting that we did not know that they offered. And it wasn't until I think at least halfway. Yeah, it wasn't something they advertised. Yeah, it wasn't until like halfway through the cruise that we noticed that they started doing that. And so I don't know if that was something they did throughout the cruise or that's kind of standard practice or not. Okay. 
This ship has a couple of restaurants. They have like what, Sabatini's, the steakhouse, and that convertible, the Crab Shack? Yes, the Crab Shack. Yeah. Did y'all do any of those? We did not do any specialty dining. Frank makes a mean steak at home. So for us, that's not a big draw. And then for with two kids, it's honestly not worth it paying a cover charge for four people Mm -hmm. um, to get food that's relatively similar. You know, we chatted with people that had been and some people loved it and some thought it wasn't worth it. So Mm -hmm. um, I think it might might have been hit or miss for people, um, but it wasn't something that was up our alley to really try. Right. And so the only times that we did do the specialty dining was during when they had those complimentary lunch mm-hmm. uh, offerings um, uh, for it. Gotcha. As far as the entertainment on this 58-night cruise, what did you think as far as the production shows, the music around the ship and such? Well, production shows, we were slightly disappointed with this ship's offering. The singers and dancers only came on. I think we ended up with maybe five or six shows from them, production shows. Two were fantastic. They did the Secret Silk and the Down in the Bayou. And those were wonderful Broadway-style productions, which we thoroughly enjoyed. And they run over an hour long, each of those. But they seem to require a lot of practice. So the singers and dancers don't really come out to do anything else. You know, in their defense... One of the singers did break his ankle. Another male singer had a family emergency. So we lost two. They had to get new ones to come in, which is complicated when, you know, they have to fly into different ports to to adjust and all of that. But we weren't too impressed with this showing. With the entertainment, one thing that uh, we definitely liked was their folkloric shows. So throughout the cruise, they brought in, um, when we were in Peru, they brought in uh, Peruvian dancers and singers. They did the same thing uh, for a tango show when we were in Buenos Aires. And they also brought in a uh, flamenco show and a Brazilian singer when we were over um, in, in, the, in Rio. So their folkloric shows were very, very good. Uh, along with some of the specialty entertainers um, throughout there. And they had, and we would say they're, they're smaller music venues, um, the, the rotating instrumentalists that were at the various uh, bars and stages were good as well. Yeah, we enjoyed all of the live music. Our boys love to dance. So that was quite an enjoyable experience. And for the most part, you could find it in the evening there was always live music somewhere. Mm-hmm. During the day on the pool deck, they only played for about 45 minutes at noon and then they were done. So I think that is somewhere they could have beefed up because that band did a great job and I think everyone would have really liked to hear them play a little bit more. Um, but live music was very prevalent on the ship. And most people enjoyed it. There wasn't as much dancing. Um, usually you see a lot more people that get out on the dance floor, but unless it was a formal night, most people just sat and enjoyed the music. Right. I think, too, you know, uh, in Princess, they group their cruise director and their staff under the entertainment team. And the cruise director actually was phenomenal on this. Actually, we think he may have ruined our boys for future cruise directors <laughs> because uh, they were so inclusive. We had Matt O as a cruise director and he was he was kind of subbing in for it. Uh, so he had to pivot very quickly. And he also had a, a new staff that he hadn't worked with before, but they executed it phenomenally.
phenomenally. They were a very young entertainment team, but they were out there, you know, bright and early every day with like the best attitudes and smiles. And so much so for our boys, they engaged with them a great deal and kind of like took them under their wings. Uh, they were able to go. They have a wake show, which is like their morning information show mm-hmm. that they were kind enough to um, bring on uh, and have kind of guest hosts with the boys, which we thought was super cool. And the boys thought were, were, it was really uh, fun. And also they incorporated our kids to help host different events throughout the, uh, the you know, whether they did their trivias, they did an animal trivia that they, they participated, karaoke that the boys. So we really uh, enjoyed that. I'm curious because you said that the the pool band only played for like 45 minutes or so at a time. What is the demographic on a 58-night cruise? Most people were grandparents. Everyone's mm-hmm. probably over the age of 60 might have been the youngest besides us. Yeah. Which for us was great. We don't we don't mind that. Right. You know, our boys were doted on by everyone because yeah. um, they were the only technically the only grandkids they were going to see for the next yeah, two months. Yeah, we had 2,000 cool. uh, grandparents, you know, on the yeah. ship and in port. So it was great. <laughs> During sea days, because I'm sure you had a lot of them over two months, uh, how was it as far as crowds and congestion? Because these ship holds are like right around just under 2,300 people. We really didn't anticipate any sort of crowds on sea days. Um, that's something we were definitely nervous about because we did end up with almost 30 sea days. But you could always find a lounger to sit in by the pool, um, either up or down. There were always space available in the pool for you to go in. It wasn't like you were swimming on top of people. Even lines for buffet, there were maybe two, two or three nights where there was just a mad rush and a big line. Um, and usually that's just because there was something special in the buffet that everyone was lining up to make sure they got. Mm-hmm. Um, the only area that we did notice that there was a crowd issue was the first seating for their shows. Yeah, We happened to like the first seating and it was a challenge. 7.30, I think, was the first uh, showing. It was a challenge to get seats there. I think partially because of demographics, because the next showing, I think, was at 9.30. Especially if the next day was going to be a port day. Most people try to, in this crowd, uh, try to go to bed early. So everybody kind of crowded into the 7.30 show. And the Princess Theater, that was one of the areas that they did not expand as they kind of increased additional capacity. I forget, a few years ago, they added a couple hundred more rooms Mm -hmm. and increased the ship's capacity. But that was just an area that they couldn't really increase. So that made it a challenge so much so that you kind of had to get in there anywhere between half an hour to 15 minutes before showtime to get a seat. I want to go back to dining just for a second because I just randomly thought of this. You guys were sailing kind of when the whole Diamond Princess thing was happening on the other side of the world with the coronavirus and everything. Did you see any kind of changes in the buffet area throughout your cruise, like maybe from day one till the end as far as like being served or anything like that? Starting initially, because like you said, we, we started in January. Mm-hmm. I would argue this, the same kind of process that had been in other ships, right? They have two hand-washing stations on either entrances to the buffet yeah. and hand sanitizer both after the entrance of the buffet. As the increase of the coronavirus and news of that um, was kind of escalating, we started to see that they were changing their processes um, in real time. Mm-hmm. So beforehand, when you walked 
in there was the typical after you went through the hand washing stations and attendant handed you your plates, and then you were kind of self-served the entire time. Then as news of the coronavirus was impacting the Diamond Princess and other cruise lines, they changed it where it was now only a single pass system, where once you kind of went through the food serving areas, you had to go back all the way around to the hand washing station and the hand sanitizer to be able to re-engage and get additional food. Um, before that, you could go in and out. And so they essentially blocked off entrances, the multiple entrances into the buffet area and kind of did a single line through there. As I think it was getting worse, they started um, doing more frequent changeouts of the serveware. Mm-hmm. We saw that. And we also saw um, people changing their own behaviors too. Um, people were starting to use the group utensils and Megan kind of talk about kind of how we changed a little bit. With two children, I always travel with lots of hand wipes anyway. Um, and I will say the Island Princess from day one did a phenomenal job of keeping things clean. Um, I am fastidious about making sure the high chair is wiped, the table is wiped. And on other ships, I've had to do that for every single meal. I go back and rewipe because they are not very thorough. I did not have to do that on the Island Princess. Everything was always fully sanitized. You know, it would be wrapped in plastic every time it came to us at the table. And the tables were always very clean. But after we'd done our big hang in there Diamond Princess video call, you could see that they were going around much more frequently and wiping things down with a different type of cleaner, you know, one that would kill the virus within 30 seconds or whatnot. So there was more staff and their job really was just to wipe the top of every chair, all the handles, you know, and once they started doing that, we changed our behavior a little bit as well. So in addition to washing our hands in the very hot water, that was another change Mm -hmm. they made. The water got a lot hotter. (laughs) I would just take a paper towel and I would hold a paper towel to touch all the utensils, all the serving ware, And then I just throw that away once I'd gone through the buffet line, just as a separate line of defense, because you never know who wipes their nose and then picks Mm -hmm. up the spoon to serve themselves mashed potatoes or whatnot. I get it. It's it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, there's there's protocols in place for like norovirus and everything. But we were learning about this virus and we still are every day. So there was like no template for the severity of this. There was not. And I think. For most people, while we were on the ship, you're kind of in a bubble on the boat Mm -hmm. because there's not a lot of information coming in about it. You don't know what it is that's actually going on or how it transmits 100%. People got a little more nervous. We only had one new set of people join us after basically the coronavirus had hit the cruise industry. And I think people were a lot more nervous because you got we got about 450 new people join us. And we'd had a separate group group join us maybe 20 days before that, where we'd rotated in another, say, 100, 500 people or so. And people didn't really change their behavior. It was just, eh, more people are here. But with the second set, you could tell that everyone was a lot more nervous with all of these new people joining the boat because you didn't know if they might be sick. You know, so there were more people using paper towels to touch things. We didn't do as many high fives when you have young children. In general, we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So people really like to high five little children and touch them. (laughs) So towards the end, um, we never used a stroller in all 58 days until the end of the cruise. And we literally used it to go to the buffet just to kind of keep them contained from potentially 
touching something and to also keep people from touching them right before they ate because, you know, our almost two-year-old still puts his fingers in his mouth and that right. can be, you know, it's not worth the risk, I guess. Gotcha. It's going to be interesting to see how the how everything is moving forward past all of this. So let's talk about the ports of call and what we'll do here because I'm sure you've had like tons of them on here. Give me like the top five and what we'll do is give me the port of call and then a highlight and then move to the next one. I would say our first port of call, and this was mostly because we'd never been there, uh, that we were interested was uh, Manta, Ecuador. And the big highlight there was we didn't actually have a little, very big expectation of, you know, I, did, I didn't do that much research personally, but the ability of things right so close to the port of call uh, was very, very, I liked that. Plus there was, you know, we have little kids. And so there was a playground, a really nice playground right there, an artisan market. It was very efficient how the uh, ship got to the cruise terminal and then from the cruise terminal um, going out to where the actual port of call. Because if you go to the right, there's a beautiful beach area with restaurants, shops. If you go to the left right after the cruise port, that's where you can go to the artisan market and playground. If you go across the street, there's a cultural museum that is very, very well done. It's free for anyone. And also, I think the, the other reason why we actually liked it is um, in Ecuador, they use the U.S. US currency. So that made, you know, any exchange rate issues, questions non-existent. So. Okay. And then how about your next one? Next was Easter Island. That was big on our list to see just because you want to say, oh, I've been there um, because not many people have. And while the process to get onto Easter Island was absolutely disastrous, once we were on the island, it was beautiful. Being able to see the Moai, they're huge when you're actually standing right in front of one. Um, You know, when you get to see them, not in their perfect form that you see them, say, in the Smithsonian or in a museum when you're in Chile. You know, to be able to see them in their natural land and to see the craters and to see five or six moai right over the beach, over the water, while the sun's setting is just a gorgeous experience. Um, I think for us, we realize that it takes four days to get out to Easter Island. You'll get maybe a couple hours if you're lucky. Um on Easter Island, and then it takes four days to get back. So for most people, we'd actually recommend that you do Easter Island as a separate trip of the, I guess, 16 cruise ships that try to go to Easter Island each year. Only half of them are actually able to make it in because the dockage is so incredibly difficult and rocky. You can only do one tender in at a time. And those waves were huge, you know, getting in and out. So it makes it quite difficult to access Easter Island. And it also makes it a very lengthy process to get back onto the tender because they really have to wait for all the waves and the rocks and whatnot. Um, I think we left, our tender left at 8.45 p.m. And we were supposed to be heading out of Easter Island by 5 p.m. And we were by no means the last people back on the boat. Well, I, I didn't realize it was so far off the coast of South America. I, I mean, that's almost like going to Hawaii and back from uh, California. So, yeah, I think it's 3,200 nautical miles, I think, from where uh, our last port, which was Pisco from Peru. And so, yeah, um, you almost have 10 days. A lot of people don't realize 10 days almost out to sea that you, you if you kind of think about it, right? Yeah. Uh, and so... Yeah. Especially if you didn't make it into the island, you yeah, it's kind of a waste on your cruise if you don't get to actually go to Easter Island. If you make it on there, it's totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, I'm guess like you know you think of just 
bringing it closer to home here, like when people want to go out to one of the cruise lines, private island, like Perfect Day or Half Moon Key or whatever, and the weather and the wind and the waves stopped them from going. And that was like, you know, what they were on the ship for to do. It's kind of a bummer. Definitely, yes. And so, as Megan mentioned, it was a challenge to get off the ship to get into the actual island. Mm-hmm. But we felt very fortunate that we actually did get to have the short amount of time that we, we, we were able to. How close do you get to stand underneath these statues? You used to be able to get right up on them and then mm-hmm. someone broke an ear off of one. And okay. so now they have little barricades up. Okay. <laughs> a few feet for some mm-hmm. of them. They have um, kind of like park rangers that police the tourists where you're there, but they're not very pushy at all. And that's also one of the interesting things about Easter Island. Some of the key sites you want to see are covered by their national park system mm-hmm. uh, that requires an additional fee. Plus, whatever your cruise excursion um, or uh, travel partner is taking you to. Okay. Uh, and then there's other parts, parts that do or that are not part of the national park that you don't have to pay a fee for. And if you decide to, to hire a driver when you get into port, that's what we did. Um, we teamed up with a, another couple on the ship and the six of us hired a driver that kind of guided us to the areas that weren't part of the national park. That was a great you know, few hours because um, you go there, you see what you want to see, and you were able to come back in time. Nice. So you did Ecuador, Easter Island. What was another top one for you? For me, especially, was going to Puerto Madryn in Argentina. And that's just because I really wanted to see the penguins. So that was a huge highlight. It definitely takes about an hour and a half to get out to the national park to go see the penguins. But being able to kind of just, and there's hundreds, if not thousands, depending on which national reserve area you go to. And you could literally reach out and touch one. Obviously, please don't touch them, but they're right there. And you could just spend the time just watching them go in and out of their burrows and going into the water. And that, I think for me, was a huge highlight. We didn't do too much else in Puerto Madryn. Um, The highlight basically is driving an hour and a half to go see um, all of the wildlife. So that was quite enjoyable, I think, for me. I could spend hours of just watching them walk around on YouTube and Antarctica or wherever, Argentina, because they have such personalities. Yes, they are so cute. I think the other place we saw them was the Balestas Islands. Um, And that was enjoyable as well because they had all the sea lions as well. And it's, you know, their own little nature preserve and you're on a boat. So that's lots of fun as well. Um, But the wildlife, I think, was great, especially those little penguins. (laughs) My next one was uh, Montevideo in, in, in Uruguay. And the reason I like that is... Unlike some of the other ports where you had um, some type of a bus to get onto to get to the cruise terminal, and then there was um, some additional transportation to get to the next site of interest, in Montevideo, right where your ship docks, you probably walk a total of 100 feet. You go past the cruise terminal, and you are in the heart of where you want to be. Across from you is the Puerto Market, which has it's famous for having both shops, but more so these grill stations of Uruguayan beef. And there's a little competition of who raises better beef, whether it's um, Argentinians or Uruguayans. And so they have all of these stalls that are just grilling meats and vegetables. And it was just amazing to, because we got in there early, so you can kind of see them, the, the whole liveliness of them getting ready for the day. And around that whole area, there are like actual art houses and just so much to do within 10 minutes from getting off the boat to being in the heart of what you want to see very, very quickly. And then you could spend the whole day 
um, just touring that area and then be right back onto your ship. So I, I like that the most because I like that I was, you know, if I wanted to, I could hop back onto the boat really quickly or still be in, in the, the heart of the action. And it wasn't touristy at all. It really felt like an authentic experience. I think El Habela was, which is in Brazil, it's an island in Brazil, was a highlight and a big surprise maybe, I don't know, three weeks later because they have these tiny little biting flies. So I was very concerned before we left, you know, we packed all our bug spray, we headed out to El Habela and the beaches are just gorgeous. It is definitely an island we would return to, to visit and to stay for a while. Um, the locals are all very friendly. You can get right in the water. And we had a beautiful morning at the beach, and then we rented a car um, and went up to the waterfalls. So you go into the rainforest, and there's all these waterfalls that you can get in, slide down, walk underneath. Um, but they have these massive, I don't know, vats of citronella oil when you enter the rainforest um, that are provided free of charge. So you kind of soak yourself down, and I guess we missed a couple spots, um, but those biting flies, I think you still, it's like a mosquito bite, except they bleed. Ouch. So I think that kind of put a little damper on Ilhabella, but it was a beautiful, beautiful island. Um, there was so much to see and do that it's one place that we didn't get to go to all of the various local areas mm -hmm. to see all the shops. It's kind of like it's divided into two sort of downtown type areas yeah so when you kind of first come off the ship it's kind of like what we, you would consider like an old town area that has a couple of shops and you can just walk that whole area it has a very famous church that overlooks your tender area and so you know once you tender and tendering was like 15 minutes from where the the, the ship docked so that was very helpful uh, and we got in there really early, like Megan said, like around eight o'clock. And we spent from like at least eight till 12 o'clock at the beaches. And the beaches are right there, you know, just, uh, you know, just as you get off of the port tendering location. And for me, that's kind of how I like uh, ports that I can get into the action and go what do in, in the shortest amount of time. So we, we enjoyed the beach there. And then you had the additional area of going into the rainforest. And what Megan kind of overlooked was that when you get to those waterfalls, there's actually a Kinshasa distillery as you approach it. <laughs> and they have free tastings there. Nice. Uh, so you can kind of have not only just Kinshasa, but also like infused. We wound up buying a bottle of um, a passion fruit infused Kinshasa, which was really great. And then when you kind of came back after uh, going through the waterfalls, Going back into the old town, they have a really great uh, carnival museum. And this was during the time of carnival. So you can kind of see all the floats and then uh, continuing uh, to, to share the history of carnival, but also seeing it being prepared for that evening as well. So that I thought was also really enjoyable. So how many ports of call do you know offhand that you actually hit on this 58 night cruise? We hit 27 ports of call, including scenic cruising of like Cape Horn and the... Um, well, it would have been Amalai Glacier, which we didn't actually get to do, but we had 27, 27 days, um, which was nice. And quite a few overnights. We spent two nights in Rio um, because we were in Rio for Carnival. I think the only two days that it rained quite frequently in Rio all year were the two nights we were there. We spent a couple nights in Lima as well. As Megan kind of mentioned, we didn't actually get to all of our ports. Um, you know, that's part of cruising, right? Sometimes there are challenges of making all your ports. And for us, um, we actually had some bad weather leaving Santiago. 
which the actual cruise port is San Antonio. So there was uh, just bad weather. So we actually had to stay there another day and a half because we couldn't get out because the channel to get out of the Santiago port is very narrow. So we were there for a day and a half. And so that wound up us uh, missing out on Puerto Montt. And as Megan mentioned, uh, the scenic cruising of Amalia Glacier. Aside from that, I think, you know, we had really great weather everywhere else. And so we, we, you know, it was hard to complain about that. How was the weather down at the tip of South America? Because it can get nasty down there. The captain actually made a special kind of comment about that, that we were extremely fortunate because the weather was very, very calm. And we had heard and we, when in our research, we had heard that it can be very treacherous. It can be cold, choppy, you know, seasickness type of conditions. But we got down there and 60s. and it happened to be a heat wave that they were going through. So it was actually even in, you know, Ushuaia and Punta Arenas, Chile, it was 58 to 60 degrees, which for them is unseasonably warm. Crystal blue skies. And as we kind of finished off that whole the, the Straits of Magellan and started heading up to the Falcon Islands, the captain came on to the announcements and said, uh, I'll, you know, in my many years of sailing, this has been the best weather we've ever had sailing through that. So we were very fortunate. Yes, we packed um, like winter boots and gloves and hats because it was supposed to hit 40 degrees and, you know, winds 20 miles per hour. And when we were in Tierra del Fuego, we did the train to the end of the world. We were in T-shirts and jeans. It was gorgeous, gorgeous weather. So that's the beauty of traveling with Frank. He tends to always get the really nice weather. The places that were supposed to be really, really hot, you know, 110 degrees in Rio, it was maybe 85. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, my my dad is a retired captain, and he I remember just hearing stories growing up of the Drake's Passage in the tip of South America where they've it has taken out oil tankers and flipped over tugs and barges and everything through the years. Like it gets pretty nasty down there. I was surprised how close we sail to the glaciers and like land as you're going to Cape Horn. Yeah. As you're getting to Cape Horn and as you're coming around the um, Beagle Channel. Mm -hmm. So I could not imagine having to have to traverse that in adverse weather. Yeah. Out of all these ports you went to, like just the ballpark here, how much did you book through the ship against booking on your own? Originally, we booked one excursion with the ship, and that okay. was to go see the penguins. And as we got closer and we realized the weather was beautiful, um, we ended up canceling that one. We tend to not be big cruise shore excursion people. We, we usually do the cruise provide excursion when we think there is a risk of us getting back, right? Because that's uh, the, the biggest benefit for us of using the cruise excursion programs. And so that's where we kind of looked at it. And when we kind of realized that there wasn't a risk of it because we were fortunate with the weather, we canceled that. But in all, we did our own either independent booking ahead of time, or we, as Megan kind of mentioned early on, you know, we had our, our an itinerary kind of already planned out. So we kind of already had an idea of where we were gonna go and who the providers we were gonna use ahead of time. Yeah, very cool. So you make your way back to Port Everglades. How was disembarkation? Disembarkation, again, was very smooth for the most part. Um, it took a little bit of time to get off of the ship um, because it's now March, second week in March, and coronavirus is now an issue. 
So it seemed to be taking a little bit longer for people to make it through customs. So the ship was only allowing a certain number of people to get off and go into customs. And I think another factor was that all the ship's crew also had to redo their... Yeah, their immigration. So we did not realize this, but um, and you're probably more familiar with this than we are, Doug, that after every certain uh, cycle or certain amount of time, the ship's crew kind of have to represent themselves to customs officials in the United States. Mm-hmm. And since we were out for you know almost 60 days, I guess maybe it's like a 30-day window or save every 60, I actually don't re- remember what it was. The entire ship's crew had to present themselves. So that took the number of uh, customs officials that would normally be screening just passengers. They were having to do it for the entire crew as well. So that increased it. And so the ship did a very good job. We had an early disembarkation time, but we didn't wind up leaving until I think we scheduled the 745 one. And we didn't leave until get off the actual ship to even start the immigration process until like 10 Close to 10. Yeah, 10, 10.45 time frame. And then once we got there, we were fortunate that we're on the global entry program. So that significantly reduced our time waiting. The lines were to the point where the building management for that stated that why Princess had to keep people on the ship was they were exceeding the max occupancy of the building. And so that's how bad the lines were, just because of additional screening given the, the, the concern of COVID-19. Gotcha. But after that point, it was smooth. Do you have any first-time thoughts for someone taking an extended voyage or sailing on Island Princess? Well, I think you definitely have to be comfortable on the Island Princess, being around individuals that are much older and recognizing that they tend to be a little more set in their ways. Mm-hmm. So... You have to have that flexibility and understanding that they sometimes like to complain a lot about things that aren't (laughs) worth complaining about and that the ship is a little bit older. So keep that in mind. If you like the fancy, shiny lights, um, that is not the Island Princess. Um, If you're looking for that cozy feel, it is definitely a wonderful ship and you get to hit a lot of ports you cannot hit in those really big ships. And I think as far as first timers on a really long cruise, planning. So yes, so if you're going to do a long cruise and your ship happens to have a laundry facility, we happen to use those, whether it's Tide or whichever, uh, the pods. The laundry pods are really great to take with you because you're probably going to want to do laundry if you're not an elite member that gets it already um, for complimentary. So that that's a, a big thing. Also is we saw people having enough luggage to, you know, they were moving to South America, not visiting South America. Your stateroom is only so big. And so if you have the ability to consolidate what you're going to wear um, for long voyages and, and kind of plan your wash days on your port days, that I think will significantly help your embarkation experience, not having to lug all that. And then how much time you're going to have to spend unpacking and repacking at the end of the voyage, because inevitably you're going to come back with lots of souvenirs for your trip. Uh, Traveling with kids, a lot of parents and grandparents have asked us. So our tips for traveling with kids are have those magnetic block toys. You only have so much real estate on the ground, but there's all these uh, magnet blocks are called that you can have uh, toys that are magnetic that can go on the wall 
all that they can do things with. Um, our boys really love that. Some type of decoration for either your door or your signing that you can kind of help your kids remember where it is that your room is and they're excited. So that when they run by, they're like, oh, there's our, you know, Mardi Gras beads. That's our room or whatever it is. Um, and any decorations that you're going to have for the holidays that are coming through there is also really cool. And I think also fans, we do little handheld fans that are rechargeable. And when you go to South America, and especially during the summer, it gets hot. So those handheld fans were a lifesaver for them. And then, you know, also kind of for us, because you can steal it a little bit as you, you know, readjust it. You know, it helps keep you cool while the days are long. We don't do strollers. We have a collapsible stroller for places we were going. But when you go to South America, most of the places are not stroller friendly. You know, there's a lot of cobblestone a lot of potholes, a lot of places where you're walking, where there is just not the ability to have a stroller or walkers or things like that. So we use like the baby carriers that have a hip seat and it kind of just removes all the weight of your kid. And we just carried both the kids that way. And it made it a lot easier to get around, you know, the tight corners and the smaller streets in all of these towns. And also when you have four people in a room, um, packing power strips is very helpful because not only do you have, you know, whether you have a laptop or an iPad or your phones for two people, um, most staterooms only have maybe two to three plugs, maybe four, not including what's in the bathroom. Having a power strip that, you know, is surge protected and is all safe is very helpful for the various electronics that you might have for older kids. And I think our last thing, especially in light of COVID-19 and people returning to cruising, in your stateroom, your stateroom attendant doesn't like to move all of your stuff. So if you have the desk filled with all of your belongings and your makeup and your hair straighteners and wallets and clothes or whatever it is, they're not going to move that, which means your desk isn't getting cleaned underneath. Um, same thing. For the most part, they'll move things in your bathroom, but you'll get a much cleaner stateroom if you put things away in your stateroom. And I think also traveling with kids is not as scary as a yes. lot of people like to make it. Actually, for us, I feel it enriches the travel experience because it tends to be a natural icebreaker when talking to other adults, especially if you are engaging in other cultures. You know, you may not be able to speak the language, but kids are kind of kind of like a universal icebreaker and they'll help you out. They'll give you directions, but they also want to, you know, play with them. And I think and the way they, you know, especially for 58 days, um, seeing you and your partner can kind of get challenging. Having kids there that kind of amplify that and, you know, give you another viewpoint of how to look at your travel experience, I think is very beneficial. And, and we've always traveled with kids because we prefer that versus just traveling on our own. So looking back, what was the biggest highlight for each of you? That's such a hard question. I think the highlight for me was seeing how my children interacted with all of these various cultures and all of these various individuals. As Frank had been saying, we travel a lot. So we spent not this Christmas, but the previous Christmas, we cruised to India and Oman and the UAE you know, and then on this trip, we took them down to South America. So seeing them play with other children, being able to interact with adults, um, to join the karaoke games, to being so excited to see the turtles in the water when we go kayaking, it gives you a new light to experience the beach. You know, my favorite way to enjoy the beach pre-kids was just laying on the beach with a book 
book, watching the water. You know, it's a whole new experience when you're completely allowed to just build the sandcastle right at the water's edge and the locals come up and they'll now chat with you because their child now wants to build a sandcastle with your kids. So you get a, a richer experience as you go. And I think that made it so much more enjoyable. My highlight is um, I'm kind of a traditional I like to cruise for its um, traditional reason, I guess, is um, we don't do the Wi-Fi package. I don't watch the news. I still think cruising is a great way to disconnect. And so having 58 days to unplug, to reconnect with other family, to experience new cultures, new food, other guests, and focus in a time that we're kind of bombarded with a lot of technology and distraction and just kind of focus on being in the experience of travel I think this trip allowed an extended version of that because you had so many sea days and import days that it wasn't, you know, kind of go, go, go every time. It was, for me, my biggest highlight was certainly the opportunity to unplug and relax for 58 days. One thing I forgot to ask earlier when we were talking about the ship, how was the casino as far as the smoke situation in and around it? We never experienced any of the smoking. I think there, for the most part, it was a smoke-free casino. They had quite a lot of time that was smoke-free, and you didn't have to walk through the actual casino. So mm -hmm. the pathway was on the side of it. Mm -hmm. So in most other ships, they kind of steer you right through the middle of it, so you're bombarded by whoever is smoking. Yeah. Here, there were machines and space to kind of keep you out of it. Um, so for me, that was very nice that you didn't have to you know, go through that. Very good. Well, in closing here, your final thoughts of Island Princess. As we said earlier, we really enjoyed the Island Princess. I, I think, you know, for Princess themselves, they're kind of doubling down on the Island Princess because it's the ship, I believe, to um, be the lead ship for the World Cruise coming up. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're going into a retrofit or um, an updating period at the end of this year. I don't know if that's still the plan, obviously, given kind of the current situation. And so I think that the, the ship kind of balances that small ship capability of going to smaller ports that obviously larger ships can't, but also still being big enough that you can get away, that you don't feel crowded. I think that it's a very good mix of that middle category of a ship. So I thought the Island Princess is a good ship. And um, once it gets updated at the end of the sea, we'll probably be even a better ship. Yes, I think they did a wonderful job on their food. You know, it wasn't the best food we've ever had, but it was definitely up there, up there with our other experiences on other cruise lines. Their kids club, even though there were no children, for the most part, in the kids' club, their youth staff still do a wonderful job of having activities and engaging with the children. Um, so I think when they do get kids, it's a good option. Um, they have spaces that allow you to get away from all of the other people, if you so desire, um, where you can sit on a lounge at the front of the ship, and there might be one other person who's chosen to relax up there on a sea day. So I think it's a very nice ship where you don't feel overcrowded or... Like you're stuffed in like sardines. Okay, one last question I'll ask you then. And you could both give me your thoughts or one collective thought. Cruising post-coronavirus, are you going to have an issue with it? Well, it's kind of funny because while we were on the, on the ship, we did book, as many of your listeners maybe are aware of, that on the ship they always have uh, future cruise promotions. 
And we actually did do a future cruise. So we'll be planning on being with Princess again on the Sky Princess in okay. February of 2021. Okay. And uh, actually just recently, we decided to also try, we like to try the variety of different types of ships. So celebrities, uh, Equinox will be doing at the end of August of this year. So we really enjoy cruising for the value that it provides. And kind of my thing with it is I feel obligated. We have so many great memories with the cruise industry that now more than ever do they need our help. So I'm willing to double down on them and help, especially, you know, the captains, the crew, um, your room stewards, all those people that have lost their jobs, both on the corporate office and onboard sailings. To no fault of their own, I think, you know, I feel that if I can, I want to support them now more than ever. I was a little more apprehensive about doing an August cruising, but I do agree with Frank, which is why we booked the cruise, that you really do have to make do that support. Um, and then we're also hoping that there will be probably less people in August cruising. So if we're going to head back to it, maybe we'll you know, luck out and there will be a little more distancing. I think it'll be interesting to see how they adapt all of their hygiene policies and how they manage a buffet with thousands of passengers on a ship. You know, we've kind of been discussing personally what we think might be occurring on the ship. So it'll be interesting to see what they ultimately decide to do. But I think we will probably pack extra hand sanitizers and we'll be a little more careful on the ships and when we're in port, you know, than we probably were previously on this last trip. Um, we'll be a little more cautious, I think, in our in our interactions with locals and cruise guests alike. Yeah, I, I don't take the elevators on cruise ships, so I always take the stairs. And one mm -hmm. thing that I'm going to start being really conscious about is not grabbing on to the railings. Railing. Sometimes, you know, once you, you're going from deck one up to deck 12 or 15, you kind of pull yourself along once you get towards the end <laughs> stretch there. But I th that's not going to happen anymore for me, I believe. It's true. And I think going into the gym, I you know, I'm not always as conscientious about wiping machines down. I think when I go in this time, I'll be much more, yeah. I'll be carrying that hand wipe and wiping down the machines and my hands between, you know, every, every set. And I'm still amazed that I still have to touch a door handle on any modern day ship these days, right? Mm -hmm. um, so many other ships have moved to, you know, sliding doors or some, I think that is something that the cruise industry can definitely be looking at that, you know, what are the needed touch points? And obviously for watertight doors, I can understand that. But, you know, walking to the pool decks or how do you design, you know, public use bathrooms, the having to open doors uh, nowadays, I don't think is something they can they can figure out along with we have automatic hand washers, but we don't have automatic soap dispensers mm -hmm. um, on a lot of these cruise ships <laughs> would boggle my mind. Those are kind of the things where I think their ability to reimagine touchless experiences on on ships will be something interesting to see. Well, we've been talking with Frank and Megan about their 58-night cruise aboard Island Princess. If you would like to, reach out when you get back from your cruise later this year. I'd love to catch up and do a review. Oh, definitely. Sure. Yeah, and thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank yeah, you for right, having us. So After listening for the past hour, do you think you could do a 58-night cruise? Let me know what you think. Doug at cruiseradio.net. I think I probably could. If they could assure me that the internet connectivity would be good for a large part of the cruise because of the podcast and the daily news briefs and running the website, 
I would totally do it, especially doing a you know a bucket list destination. I would probably go north though, like Arctic Circle, Norway, Greenland, Iceland, um, like I was supposed to do until my cruise got canceled in June. Um, but I don't know. Easter Island it sounds really cool, and seeing the penguins down in Argentina, and there's some in Chile as well. Uh, yeah, just just so much to see out there, and we're just getting started. Thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate you. We'll talk to you on Thursday. Stay safe and protect your neighbors. Take care. During these difficult times for the travel industry, Cruise Radio stands behind the men and women who work so hard to bring our vacation dreams to life. From the captains and crew to travel agents, tour operators, vendors, and port employees, we offer a sincere thank you on behalf of the thousands of guests whose lives you impact each and every day. 